It's about choosing the right site, not not choosing a C-grade site in a C-grade suburb and, and think that it's going to sell well. And by the time you've put three four $400,000 into the site, you realise it's not going to sell. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the show. It's great to have you with me. I have a terrific discussion coming up with a developer who I'm sure will inspire you to bigger and better things. I've been pretty busy the past couple of weeks as my project approaches completion. I've been working on satisfying the permit conditions of the subdivision so I can get compliance from council and get the titles off to the titles office, which I'll be trying to make happen in the next two weeks. The only outstanding item on the list is the electricity, and that is now with the retailer who we're using to set up the new accounts. So I'll be gently cajoling them along over the coming days and weeks to get the accounts in place, which will satisfy my last condition. It has been pretty active on the site with most of the landscaping now done and it looks really good. We've had some hot weather lately so I've been out at the site doing lots of watering to help the plants settle in. The new vehicle crossover is in place and the back 10 townhouses are essentially finished and have been checked for defects by my architect and the builder is just addressing those minor issues. Otherwise they are done and the agents have been taking valuers through for their valuations. I'm very happy with how they've come together and hopefully the buyers will be just as happy when they get their first look. But I'm also preparing for something to not work out quite right. The townhouses along the front are also rapidly approaching completion and I think by the time we get our titles back they'll be finished so it is likely we'll settle all the properties around the same time. Which will be nice and then I can celebrate, although it will be with a sense of sadness when the project gets handed over as it has been such a big part of my life over the past four years, and it will be strange not having it so prominently in my life. Anyway, that brings me to the next project, which is currently in the public notice phase. We probably have around another week to go before it's closed off, and we can see what feedback we have from the local residents. I have been contacted by one neighbour who is not happy with our colour scheme and the visual bulk she will see from her backyard, So I'm trying to see what we can do to alleviate that. I might suggest some screening plants to obscure the view and see how that is received. Okay, on to today's guest, Danny Chiama from Urban DC. Danny has more than 15 years of developing experience and has an impressive record of completing a range of projects, including some beautiful apartment buildings in Melbourne. He is also doing some projects in Sydney, which he will talk about during our discussion. I think you will enjoy hearing about Danny's approach to developing and some of the aspects of the process that he really focuses on. In this conversation, we talk about the number one factor that Danny chooses sites on, his thoughts on debt, the importance of design, and how you can stay ahead of the market. I started off by asking Danny what food he would eat until he was sick. (laughs) Probably pizza. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of mine as well. I think if I had to answer that question, that's what I'd come up with. <laughs> that wasn't on your list. <laughs> and, and any particular type of pizza? Ah, uh, look, as long as it's got anchovies on it. Oh, you like anchovies yeah. as well? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I love, love a good anchovy pizza. <laughs> good icebreaker. <laughs> now, we're here today to talk about you and your developing. Mm-hmm. You've done some pretty amazing apartment developments across Melbourne. Thank you. Can you tell us, how did you get into property developing? 
Well, first started off as an architect, became a registered architect, um, always loved property. And after a couple of years as an architect, realised just wasn't fulfilling my, you know, my love of property, a bit one-dimensional. So got into project management. So worked at Village Roadshow for several years as a project manager, worked on some of the big multiplexes around Melbourne and Switzerland. Then, you know, still wanted to get into development, so um, ended up getting a job at Docklands Authority, which um, sort of springboarded me into that sort of arena. Got to meet a lot of the big developers around town, did a lot of big deals, Docklands Authority, uh, negotiated development agreements and um, sold land to developers. And that was a really good grounding into development. And that's where I met a developer called Maurice Schwartz. I did a couple of deals with him in Docklands and Sort of a few years after I left Docklands, I joined forces with Maury and became a partner of a company called Pan Urban, and, um, and that was the start of it. So, yeah, stepping stones along the way. Mm. And then when you went out on your own, what sort of projects were you, were you doing? Uh, more your boutique, smaller buildings. So with Pan Urban, with Maury, we did sort of your towers and your, your bigger projects, you know, Beckett Tower and 401 St Kilda Road, which was, 401 was high-end luxury apartments. But when I went out on my own, just did smaller, you know, your 20s and your 30s, 15s. I've done some, I've also done a couple of hundred in a, in a block as well. So, yeah, I like the smaller ones, infill sites, whereas with Pan Urban, we're more inner city. I like the inner ring around Melbourne and, you know, apartments that are tailored for the owner-occupiers, downsizers. And that just allows me to express my creativity more and do bigger apartments, better quality. So it's always been apartment projects? Yeah, I've done some townhouses. I've done some townhouses. There's always been a bit of retail along the way, but that's always sort of the adjunct to an apartment building where you've got retail on the ground floor. Um, I wouldn't call myself a retail developer or an office commercial developer. I specialise in residential. And the only difference to that is I've done the odd townhouse development. So I did 17 townhouses in Preston, which flew out the door, went very well. It's a good product. But, you know, very hard to get a good townhouse site with the current planning laws. Yes, well, we might come to planning laws uh, and their challenges later on. Mm. And what about your current projects? Because you've got a mm. few on the go at the moment. Can you yeah, tell so us I've got, um, about I've just, those? I've just finished Bosco Brighton in, in Brighton, sort of near Church Street, near the pantry there. 26 uh, owner-occupier apartments. That went very well. It's all settled and it's been finished now for about eight months. And I've got another one in Carlisle Street, 308 Carlisle Street, was the old BP site, so I purchased that and got 38 apartments above four retail shops with basement car parking. And you know, that was tailored to the owner occupier, and it was quite amazing. I just thought it'd be a local market that you know, buyers from Kew, Bullying, Mount Eliza, all over the place, Caulfield, all inquired and purchased. And you know, probably about three quarters of the stock actually is uh, owner occupier. People with kids have even purchased, you know. I've had to consolidate two, two medium-sized apartments to create one large four-bedroom apartment. So, you know, I sold that for around $1.8 million, which was probably a price record for an apartment in Balaclava, I'd imagine. So that's that project. It's under construction, basement built. It's starting to, you know, in a couple of months, we'll start to head upwards. Yeah, Four-level building and due to be finished early next year. And I think you're branching out interstate as well, are you? Yeah, yeah. So I've got uh, I've got two, potentially three, actually, in Sydney. I've got one in Roselle, which is a, a great suburb, sort of similar to a Albert Park, I guess, of Sydney, near the water, right on the border of Balmain, and uh, 22 
apartments, similar to my Brighton project, where it's all it'll be all owner occupier, quite large apartments, some with amazing water views. And um, I'm in the process now of getting the marketing together, building the display suite, and we'll be launching in April. And that should should go quite well. Sydney market in certain pockets is very strong. So I've got that, and I've got another one in Bondi Junction that um, I'm about to go in for planning, and another one in Rose Bay, so which is near Vaucluse, the border of Vaucluse. So yeah, I like Sydney. I think it's a strong market. I also like Melbourne, and you know, I think they're both good. I think those are the two cities within Australia that are strong and will you know have an upward trend. You might get your little booms, mini booms and busts along the way, but they don't last long. I think the trend is always trending upwards. You know. Well, yeah, and they're our two biggest cities in Australia. Yeah. They've sort of got an unfair advantage, aren't they? They're going to keep yeah. powering ahead. Yeah, that's right. And I've got a few other, or a couple of other sites in, in Melbourne that I'm working on. I've got one in Caulfield um, that's about to go into planning, and that's uh, 18 sort of really large apartments for the owner-occupier purchaser, um, and uh, which I don't think has been fully exploited around the area much where, where my site is, um, near the corner of Glen Huntley and Hawthorne Road. So that's exciting, and hopefully hit the market next, early next year with that one. So I'm working on a couple of things, but nothing solid yet. Fantastic. And mm. how are you finding doing something interstate and managing that process? You know, it's it's not as hard as I thought. Properties, as you know, is a slow-moving beast, really. So you um, you can get a lot done now via email and phone calls. Um, in the early days when you know I acquired the site, I had to go up there and sort of acquaint myself with all the local players and, you know, who all the consultants were, introduce myself and uh, have a few meetings from time to time. So I'd be, I'd be flying up probably once a week over a period of three or four weeks. But now, because I know them so well, I can just pick up the phone or send an email. And really, there's really no need to be there other than, you know, from time to time you need to sit down and review drawings with them or walk through the display suite and make sure that's getting built correctly. But apart from that... It's pretty. It's pretty easy, actually. Yeah, I reckon you could do it remotely yeah. once you yeah. know what you're doing with yeah. your face-to-face here and there. Yeah. Um, once construction starts, I may get a local project manager just to sort of be my eyes and ears on the ground, you know. But I'll fly up once a week or once a fortnight. Yeah. All right. And what things do you focus on now that you? Be fair to say you're an experienced developer now. What are the things you focus on now that perhaps maybe you didn't focus on when you yeah, were starting out? It's interesting. When when I was starting out, you, you're more focused on sort of because you're learning. You, you're focusing on the nuts and bolts and the process. What happens now? How does a plan of subdivision work? You know, what's the process of a certification with council? What happens? And you know, did they build this wall correctly or is this line right? You know, because you're learning, right? Now, I can do that with my eyes closed. So I, I think more about big picture stuff, what the market wants. I spend a lot of time about the product type, site acquisition, where to find the right site, where's the, where's the, the right market, what's happening with the, the, the residential market cycle. Is it trending up? Is it trending down? So I focus more on that. And always trying to find a product that's slightly different to what someone else is doing, but meeting the market. Right? I don't believe that you can induce a market. I believe that there's always a market there and you need to find what it is and just trick it up a little bit. That gives you the edge over your competitor. So although I said that, you still need to look at the detail. Right? So you're constantly zooming macro, micro, um, because if you don't look at the detail, you, you, uh, that's where you know the mistakes happen. So like even on my projects where I'm thinking big picture, I still know what the tapware is. I know what the, the tiles are. I know where the... You know, what the carpet is. 
I might I'm on top of all of that, but still need to look at the broader picture. So yeah, spend less time worrying about the process, more worrying about where the market's going. And when you talk about focusing on where the market's going, how do you go about doing that? What are the things you're thinking of? You know what? It's just it's just a jigsaw puzzle. You just piece it together. You talk to people every day. You talk to agents. You read the paper. In any one day, there's a conflicting story in, story in the paper, right? So you take the media with a grain of salt. Having your own project out in the market is the best source, right? So you know exactly what, what's happening in the sales market. And that's always the best. When with when I had Urban Inc, we had always had two or three projects on the market at any one time. So we knew what was what was working, what wasn't working, what was selling before it would hit the paper the next week. So it's just building up knowledge, talking to your colleagues, seeing what your friends are doing, seeing what what success a developer down the road got, and you know, it's the only way. It's the only way, and gut feel. Yeah, I think it's funny you should say gut because I do think mm. it has a role to play as mm. well. Mm-hmm. And you obviously must have a good gut because I think we've spoken about how many years ago you switched focus and really targeted the owner-occupier market yeah. long before the yeah. sort of well, sentiment changed yeah, around owner. Oh, sorry, investor stock. Yeah, and so like I, I did hundreds and hundreds of investor-driven apartments. That's what the Urban Inc. model was all about, um, but dressed up to look good and good quality. But um, yeah, I just got, I just sort of, I don't know, I felt something wasn't right. I just felt like we'd overdone that market and also wanted to sort of satisfy my creative side more, which is hard to do when you're trying to fit two bedrooms in a 56 square metre apartment, right? Um, Because that's what the market wanted from a price point. So, you know, for me to uh, be able to do 130 square metre apartments, 180 square metre apartments, I had to change towards the owner-occupier and I knew there was a market there. And in fact, I think there's always been a market there. It's just that everyone focused on investment because that was easy money at the time and left the owner-occupiers out to dry. And that market sort of, that's, you know, that pent-up demand within that space built up. But it's always there. There's always a need for someone who wants to sell their $3 million home and move into an apartment. So, yeah, I, I moved out of that investment space probably three years ago when I did my Brighton project. And sort of that's where I focus my current company, Urban DC, where I just, you know, want to focus on larger, owner-occupied, better quality apartments, you know. Yeah, and I think given the population growth, particularly in Melbourne Mm. and Sydney, this is going to be an inevitable move towards more and more Mm. apartment projects because people, you're just not going to be able to keep buying houses on with with dirt underneath them. That's right. So, and... Yeah. I'm not sure that councils and state governments fully understand that or if they do, they're sort of dragging their heels a little bit on enabling it to happen. Yeah, it's interesting. I think they do understand it, but it's causing a lot of grief with uh, not-in-my-backyard people. That's the problem. Yeah, Yeah, so how are you going with planning and dealing with objections and those kind of things as they come up with projects? I've always sort of taken... um, I've never really pushed the envelope from a planning sense. If a DDO says discretionary four levels, I sort of either go for four or maybe try and sneak in a hidden fifth level, which is generally considered acceptable. So I never, I never go for seven or eight and then, you know, have a fight with council, have a fight with the objectors and end up in VCAT. Very rarely do I do that. Well, I don't. So I always try and sort of purchase a site where I know there's going to be strong planning support. Not, that's not to say you don't get the objectors. You always do. But I haven't, I haven't been in VCAT for quite a while. 
which is which is good. You know, I've always had my uh, permits issued by council, which is refreshing. That is good. I've mm. got some colleagues who haven't had that support from council, even though they've had planning policy support and ended up in VCAT and still lost. So it's yeah. a bit of a toss of the coin sometimes. Oh, it is sometimes. That's right. All right. What do you reckon you've learned about yourself along the way? I've probably learned that I'm more risk adverse than I thought which is a contradictory of terms for a developer because what I do on a day-to-day basis is probably considered very risky for the average person on the street. But I do think as far as developers go, I'm probably more risk-adverse than a lot of other developers out there. And, you know, touching on the planning, I I always make sure I I buy a AAA site. It's got to be well-located, right? So that minimises the risk of your market uh, taking up the stock. I always buy something that's in a, in a planning zone that's going to support high density. And, and I just sort of manage every, every risk aspect well, you know, and I don't sleep well until I know that risk is better. So I am risk adverse. Um, when I was doing the larger developments, um, I, I did feel uneasy and I feel a lot more comfortable doing the smaller ones. So if something goes wrong, you can, you can generally throw money at it and fix it, whereas with the big ones, it's, you're talking bigger numbers. Yeah, well, you've still got a good crop of hair on your head, so you must be doing something right to manage the yeah, risks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. So, so, yeah, that's what I found out about myself. I think I'm, I'm very, very careful and risk adverse. So, yeah. It's something I'm coming more and more to understand and appreciate this idea about risk, mm. particularly with lenders mm. assessing risk. There's always talk mm. about risk. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about managing risk, what are the kind of things you're talking about doing to... It's about choosing the right site, not, not choosing a C-grade site in a C-grade suburb and, and think that it's going to sell well. And by the time you've put three four $400,000 into the site, you realise it's not going to sell at the rate per square metre you thought. Right? So it's about shoring up every assumption you've made. Right? So if you think you're going to get 10000 a square metre, well, then make sure you buy the site that can demand 10,000 and maybe 11, but you put 10 in the fees or 10 and a half, you know what I'm saying? So um, it's no good buying a site in, you know, a suburb that's 40 kilometres away from the city where there's houses all around you thinking that you're going to get 10,000 a metre for your apartment because you won't. So that's step number one, buying it in a, a zone that allows for planning and then also not taking on too much debt, right? So I think the biggest risk that developers do is they capital stack their, their projects to the hilt where they, you know, they borrow equity, then they borrow mares and then they borrow the, the senior and everything's borrowed and coupons are clicking over and at the end of the day, the lenders are the ones taking the, the profit, not the developer. So I understand that you have to start somewhere, but, you know, sometimes you need to probably do smaller projects where the debt is less when you're starting rather than jump too big. And then what would you work up to that, or you just yeah, try and work keep up it with that's, If your desire is to do big projects, sure, work up to that. But my desire is to stick with the smaller ones and put more equity into it, and make sure that uh, there's more room for movement when if things do go wrong. And how do you go about cycling through those projects, moving on from one to the next, and recycling your capital through them? It's, it's the hardest thing for a developer. It's very chunky, very very lumpy cash flow. Um, and, and that is the hardest thing. Um, and the only, you know, you either have to have your own cash and, and, and do projects that your cash flow allows, right? So, you know, a smart developer once coined the term developing within your cash flow, 
right, which some developers do. But, you know, when opportunities come along and it's a great site and whatever, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with bringing on a partner. You can bring the money in or borrowing the equity short term or whatever. You know, developers do that. I'm not against that per se. It's just that when the whole capital stack, when everything's borrowed on a large project, that's when you can get into trouble, right? unless the market's very kind to you. So how do you manage it? It's just that you really just have to manage when your projects are finishing and when you're jumping into the next one and... You know, and a lot of that's luck more than anything, but yeah, just get to a position where you've got reserves. Okay, so it sounds like just something you build up over time. Of course. There's no get-rich-quick scheme in this world. <laughs> I think there's a lot of people out there who actually don't subscribe to that point of view. Well, you know, the average person on the street think, oh, yeah, we're just developers are making a shitload of money, let's go and buy this, oh, let's do it, you know, and then they wonder how they're going to get the money. It's, it's not that easy. It's something that... The ones that are making money have built up that expertise over 20, 30 years. You know, it's generational, some of it. So it's it's stepping stones. Yeah, my colleagues and I, other people that I know who do developing, we always kind of have a bit of a chuckle how people have this very simplistic view about developing, about how easy it is. Buy a site, get a planning permit, build the houses, sell, a, sell them all, job sure. done, walk, go to the Bahamas. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's nice actually a lot of stuff that happens in between then. Nice in theory. And sometimes it does happen. Sometimes if the market, you know, timing is everything. And sometimes some people, you know, the taxi driver and the doctor and the lawyer jump in and make good money and think that's normal. But then it's it's the ones that can do it when the market's weak. They're the ones that know what they're doing, right? So when the market's weak, if you don't have the expertise, that's when you'll get into trouble. And have you been through one of those weaker markets? Um, oh, yeah, I've witnessed downturns, yeah. yeah. It's, it's terrible. Yeah, in 2004 with Panurban, we there was a huge downturn where you couldn't give away apartments and we were settling watergating docklands, and that was tough. I mean, we got through it all, you know. Even in a huge downturn, there was only a 10% fallover, but, you know, it was, it was ugly and messy and purchases not being able to settle because the valuations came in so low and, you know, and it, was, it was hard. What do you reckon you learned from that period? Uh, yeah, that, that's put a big scar on me, I think, because when it comes to settlements, I'm always very edgy. Even even since then, I've never really had major defaults. I'm always edgy come settlement time. I always make sure that I communicate with my purchasers on a monthly basis, keep them up to speed with how everything's going. Um, leading up to settlements like three months out, I'm, I'm talking to them or have staff that talk to them, you know, on a weekly basis and make sure they've got their finance in place, make sure that they're all ready to go. I think, you know, so that's one thing that it taught me was don't take your eye off the ball come settlement time. Yeah, well, that's a really good point because I've got that coming up myself, so mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm uh, very keen for it to go smoothly. Yeah, well, you, you need to, you know, make sure you prep the valuers so they understand the project They'll value it whatever they deem the value is. That's that is what it is. But it's it always helps if you prep them and they you know give them an information pack so they understand what's what the project's all about and makes it easier for them. Yeah, and just making sure your your purchasers have all their ducks in a row and ready to go. So tell us what you think is the most challenging part of developing. Getting a good site. That's that's what it's all about. Once you've got the good site, the rest is you know obviously then understanding what product to put on it but that's getting a good site that's the hardest thing the rest is process especially in a very tight market like we've been experiencing in melbourne for the last couple of years really yeah 
Yeah, very difficult. What's the most difficult business decision you've ever had to make? Saying no to a site. You know, I get thrown a lot of sites at me, you know, on a weekly basis, daily basis, and it's it's knowing, and it only comes with time and experience, it's knowing which one passes the smell test before you even start working on it. Um, whereas in the older days, I used to just spend a heap of time on a site only to find out that, you know what, location not so good. So now it's it's really, I understand, I, like I get it, I just, as soon as I know it, see a site, I know, no, nah, not for me. Um, but, you know, going back probably a couple of years, it was it was hard to say no to a deal, you know. Someone came up to you and said, I've got a really good site here, you know, all the numbers looked right, and even in a JV capacity, I've had to say no. And that's hard because you feel like you're missing out and then, you you know, it starts grating on you, oh, should I have done it, you know. But I think your gut feel tells you that if it's wrong, it's wrong. There's nothing worse doing a deal that's wrong and then you're stuck with it for the next three or four years and it drains all your cash and takes takes your, all your, your attention away from a site that you could be working on, that would be much more successful. Yeah, and that point about draining your inspiration I think is important as mm. well if you get it mm. wrong. Mm. Yeah, And I guess experience also shows that there's always another deal. It's always another deal, yeah, always. So, And it's, it's hard to say no, but like they say, there's always a train leaving. <laughs> I'm interested to hear what you've sacrificed or given up along the way to get where you are today. I don't really know. Sacrifice, that's a... I mean, I, I love it so much, I don't even feel like I'm working, to be honest, so I, don't, I wouldn't call it a sacrifice. You know, in the early days, I did, I did the long hours going, you know, driving into the city every day as an employee, working hard, but that's... 90, 95% of the population do that, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't complain about that. I don't know, I wouldn't say I've sacrificed anything. I've enjoyed every step the way you know it's yeah good fun good fun i think it's good fun i mean i feel like it's not work someone asked me the other day how long i'd since i finished working for somebody else and mm. how long since i'd worked it's like well since i left my last job correct i feel like correct. i haven't worked a day yet correct but i've been very busy yeah, exactly doing stuff but yeah. i enjoy well, it so it's a great career you know blessed mm. okay if you could go back in time and talk to yourself at what point would you go back to and what would you say to yourself? Oh, God, that's a hard question. Um, I'd probably just go back to um, when I was an architect wanting to get into project management and, and development, which is very hard. It's very hard to change careers because, you know, it's the old adage of, well, what, you, what, what experience do you have? And if you don't have it, then, you know, I can't employ you. But if you don't employ me, I can't get it. So... I would only go back to my younger self and say, um, it'll be all right, just keep going. You know, believe in yourself. That's basically it, you know, because at that time you sort of don't think it's ever going to happen. So just a word of advice from an older Danny to say, she'll be right, mate, just keep going. I think Woody Allen had a saying that 95% of his success was that he just kept showing up. That's it. He just kept turning up. That's it. (laughs) Making movies and... Then one day, people said, this guy's making amazing movies. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about attitude. Yeah, and I reckon you've got to be persistent as well. Mm. Because there's a lot of setbacks or a lot of delays and challenges that you've got to deal with. You've got to be able to push through them. Sure. 
Well, and tell me, what skill or skills do you think it's most important for developers to have? You know, it's it's one of those it's it's almost one of those professions where you're a jack of all trades, master of none. Um, you're the you're the conductor. But the biggest skill I would say is probably vision. Right? Um, you know, you don't need to know how to build. There's builders that do that. You need to know how a building gets built so that you can talk through the value management of it and cost effective way of designing your building. But you don't, you don't have to know how to be a builder. Um, you don't even know how to be an architect. There's architects that do that, or an engineer, or a services consultant. And you don't even have to know how to sell your apartments because there's agents that do that. So there's, there's always uh, an expert advisor every step of the way in every process of it. But what you need to know is what the market's doing, where's the right site, what's a good site, what's a good suburb, how can I mass this site up, um, what do I think is the right product after talking to 10 different agents and reading the paper and talking to friends and understanding where I think the trend is and then putting all those pieces together, right? So really, it's you're, you're the visionary. That's how I would explain development. Well, I'd, I'd agree with you, particularly around the skills or understanding the elements of the process because mm. I know very little about all those things that you mm. just mentioned, mm. but I think I'm pretty good at working with people and managing yeah. people yeah. and getting them to do what they need to do and getting their advice from them about how to go about That's it. Right. That's right. And then there's degrees of that too. Like, you know, when you're, if the, little, the less you know about those areas, the more the consultants will over-design potentially and over-document your building and the costs will come in high. And that's when you have to go back and value manage it and value engineer it. So the more you know about those smaller aspects or the, or the different phases, the more you can um, head off trouble. You know what I'm saying? So you can say, don't design it like this, design it like that. You know, Don't give me that type of structure, give me this type of structure. So the more info you know, the, the, the more streamlined your process will become and the quicker you can get through it. Um, but it's not everything. You know, It's more just understanding that bigger picture. And a lot of your buildings are design-driven and they're, they're quite stunning, I have to say. I, mean, I think a lot of stuff that Thank gets you. built, uh, designed and built around Melbourne is, is pretty average. But mm. Driving past some of your buildings, they look fantastic and I think mm. they actually get better with time as mm. things like vegetation and mm-hmm. start to take mm. hold. Where do you get your inspiration for, 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 keep, for, for developing? Look, it's, it's, um, it's probably just a throwback from my architectural... Um, training, you know, design's important to me. So, you know, I choose what I believe are the best architects, and but I work with them. I collaborate a lot. Uh, I wouldn't say they're my design, but I do. You know, when when the drafts come, I sort of say, "How about this? Why don't we try this? Try that? Don't like this element? Add this? You know, add more vegetation here, or you know." And and I think um, it needs to be pure. I think a lot of the architects today are just adding stuff onto facades just for the sake of creating a geometric shape of some sort, you know, a bit of colour here, a bit of colour there, and it's just it's just fake. It's just dressing up something, whereas I like pure architecture where the elements are actually doing something, you know. So if you've got a concrete element, it's doing something. It's either a balcony or it's a sheer wall that's holding up something. Um, it's not just stuck on because the facade needs something. And I think... The average person who knows nothing about architecture actually understands that innately. So the best designs in the world are the, more, are the simplest. There's just something about the aesthetic, aesthetic that 
people understand. They can't describe it, but they get it. Um, so I like you know, my architects to use natural materials as much as possible, glass, stone, concrete. Um, but, you know, if you have to use render and whatnot, that's fine too. But it's just got to be done in the right way and the right proportions. I think it, what the ancient Greeks called that the, the, the was it the golden design golden, or golden rectangle something like yeah, yeah where they were very much focused yeah. on simplicity and elegance to yeah. bring out the beauty yeah and they say you know beauty's in the eye of the beholder and it's all subjective but there is actually aesthetics to sorry there's actual rules to aesthetics there are rules of about proportion and depth and and you know the good architects understand that. So when you look back over your career in say twenty five years time, what do you want to what do you want to see and what do you want to be known for? Um, I want to see blue water and blue skies and uh, <laughs> the Bahamas <laughs> retirement. That's right. Um, <laughs> look, you know, I, I just do what I do because I love it, um, and it creates a good living for me. I don't. I'm not here to try and leave a mark on Melbourne or create a legacy. It's That's not what I'm about. But it's nice to be recognised by your peers as, oh, yeah, he's done some good work. That's that's all. I don't want to win awards. I don't want to be known as the biggest developer in Australia, the best developer. Some people strive for that. I'm not. That's not what I'm about. I just want to keep plodding along, doing good work, um, and my buildings to, you know, stand up and stand the test of time, and that's it, basically. Yeah. And so when you talk about vision, David, do you articulate that when you're talking to architects or sure. to the agents? Absolutely, absolutely. When I, when I did um, Balaclava, see, Balaclava is very sort of um, grungy and rustic and architects tend to sort of fall in the trap of, oh, well, if the streetscape's rustic and, and grungy, let's let's do a grungy building, you know, let's put rusted elements on it and, you know, timber piers from St Kilda Pier and let's make it all look old and rustic, you know, to match the streetscape. I didn't want to do that at all. So when I approached Paul Conrad, um, I said, listen, I want to do a high-class building, something that, you know, you would see in South Yarra. So South Yarra slash Turak comes to Balaclava. And luckily, that's Paul's style anyway, which is one of the reasons why I chose him. So, um, and, and he delivered it. He delivered a beautiful building that you could almost see in Rodeo Drive, for instance, right? And it's going to really be the centrepiece of Carlisle Street. It's really going to stand out. And, you know, people who have seen it in the marketing have said exactly that. They've said, oh, my God, it looks like something in South Yarra, which is what I wanted. So I do set that the tone and the, and the style of of what they are to design. Because if you just say, design me a building, you'll get anything. Who knows what you'll get? So you have to sort of set the parameters of what you want, what your vision is for that area. And then in terms of your planning, are you doing any forward planning, sort of three years out, five years out, I want to be doing this project or that kind of project? Do you get it down on paper at all? Uh, Like goal setting? Goal setting and business planning? Uh, No, probably should be, but I'm not. It's too hard to predict. You know, I could get a phone call tomorrow by someone who says, I've got a great site, and that changes everything, throws everything up in the air. No, not, not really. I don't. I just, I just keep doing what I'm doing every day, and, you know, I do know from time to time, oh, you know what, I need another site, and I'll ramp that site up a bit more. So I'll, I'll ramp up, call more agents, people I know, whatever, start searching 
real commercial, you know, when I know, I feel like, oh, I think I need another site, right? Um, this one's finishing in 12 months and the other two are in planning and I feel like there's going to be a bit of a void. So that's when I ramp up the acquisition side, right, in my day-to-day activities. Then if I end up, I've got, you know, four or five projects on the go and I'm feeling like, well, this is enough for me to handle, I, I just close off and I'm not worried about what else is out there. So that's, that's the extent of my forward planning, right? Which you do have to look two or three years out because projects do have a long digestion period. Yeah, they certainly do. One of yeah. the big drawbacks of yeah. developing the timelines yeah. <laughs> from end to start yeah. to finish. Yeah. But I don't sit there and set goals going, oh, in five years' time, I want to have you know five projects under construction. In 10 years' time, I want to have 50. No, I don't do that. When you switch into that acquisition phase... So are you looking to get the site and then sort out the funding or the investment side yeah, of it after that? Yeah, or yeah. is it to get all um, the investment oh, no, it's about together? Finding a site. It's about finding a site and then, then I worry about how I'm going to buy it, you know. And that might be in a joint venture capacity, it might be outright, you know. If I had no cash reserves and had a couple of sites on the go, I probably wouldn't be that excited about finding the next site. But I know when I'm ready to find a site and, and that's when I sort of, Start, start feeling it in your bones. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> and it is a bit about that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Tell us what tip have you got for developers out there who'd be looking to take their business to the next level? The what the perfect. What tip you have for oh, developers out there who are looking to take their business to the next level? Um, well, you know, it depends what the next level means. If you're saying developers that are doing your 10-unit developments and then want to go to a 20-unit development or have two on the go that want to get to five, I'm not sure what... Is that what you're talking about? The next level being bigger bigger projects, more of? Yeah. Yeah. Look, my only advice would be, which is we discussed that a bit earlier, don't get into too much debt and just be careful of the way you capital stack it. Simple as that. Because what you end up doing is you end up doing donuts and, and basically churning and churning and churning and everyone else is getting a cut of the profit and you're not. And so how do you ensure that that doesn't happen? Is that about finding well, good it's, financial it's, advisors? Or? It's, it's growing incrementally and not too quickly so that you're not giving too much of your project away. It's no use doing a bigger project where you end up with a quarter of the profit just for the sake of doing a bigger project, unless you want that for your CV, unless you want that as a, a PR exercise to sort of put on your website and say, well, look, I can do this, that's fine, there's different drivers, but if it's purely getting bigger to, to make more profit, why would you do a project that's four times bigger than you normally could do and only getting a quarter of the profit by way of bringing partners in, all right? You're defeating the purpose. You're taking on more risk, all right, more headaches, for the same amount of money if you did a project that it was a quarter of the size all on your own. So big isn't always better. No? Yeah, I just finished reading a book about the Morgan Bank mm. and the guy who set it up, Junius Morgan, mm. and he wrote a letter to his son, Pierpont Morgan, mm. who set up J.P. Morgan in yeah, yeah. New York, and that was exactly his advice. Mm. He said, growing slowly and steadily is the best strategy for getting a That's successful it. business. Yep. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. <laughs> yes, well, they've only been smooth and fast in property developing day. No, no, that's right. All right, so if people are interested in finding out more about you or about Urban DC, where can they go? 
Look, I mean, urbandc.com.au, my website, there's all the projects that I'm working on, past projects. Drop me a line if they want. There's an info um, email there if they want to drop me a line. Happy to talk. All right, Danny Chiama, thank you so much for sharing your insights and time with us today on the Property Developer Podcast. I'm very grateful to you. Thanks, Justin. It's been good to talk and uh, best wishes for all your projects over the coming years. Thank you, and you too. Thanks. See you, Danny. (laughs) See you. Okay, there you go. I trust you enjoyed that conversation with Danny. I thoroughly enjoyed sitting down with him and talking about developing. Danny has delivered some beautiful buildings, so I would encourage you to check out the Urban DC website and see what he has been up to. I took away a couple of important points from our discussion, and they are... 1. Buy in AAA locations if you expect the highest returns. We all know the importance of location, and Danny made a great point around not expecting to achieve high prices if your location won't support it. Don't buy in B-grade locations and expect A-grade results just to make your numbers work, as you are setting yourself up for failure. What's that saying Warren Buffett has? Better to buy a great company at a fair price than a fair company at a great price. Same applies to real estate. Two, consider how much debt you take on. Danny offered some prescient advice on debt. Are you giving away too much of the deal for your own good? Is a little of something bigger better than more of something smaller? It can be hard to pass up a deal, But remember, you are going to be working on this for a couple of years, so you want to get rewarded appropriately for all the effort that is going to be required. 3. Focus on staying ahead of the market. Danny suggested some good ways of staying ahead of market trends, such as keeping in touch with agents and possibly speaking with other developers so you can remain aware of what buyers are looking for. This can help ensure you remain relevant in the marketplace and bring something to market that is desirable. All right, that's another show almost done. Thanks again for listening in. Don't forget you can find me on Instagram at Property Developer Podcast. And all the past episodes of the show are over at www.propertydeveloperpodcast.com. So until next time, may all your sites be in AAA locations. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas, and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.